heights to the depths of the sea. Verse 2, it says, Then she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? It's John, yes. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Every creature is unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck with. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. When she saw the tomb was empty, Mary Magdalene's first reaction was to think the body of Jesus was stolen. She wasn't wishing for or anticipating the resurrection of Jesus, and she certainly did not imagine it out of hope. Mary told Peter and John the news, and they immediately started for the tomb. In keeping with the author's humility, John did not refer to himself directly, but only as the other disciple. Arriving first at the tomb, John looked in and saw the grave wrappings of Jesus still in the tomb, but no body. Now let's join Pastor Rob's teaching, already in progress. Certainly the mother of James, the less, and Joses, she's the wife of Alphaeus. He's often known as Clopas or Cleopas. We know that Salome was there, who was the mother of, of James and John, the apostles, and a Joanna. Well, I don't know who Joanna is, but she was there. And other women. And by the time the women had gotten to the tomb to put the spices and the fragrant oils on Jesus' body, I mean, think about this. Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea had already packed Jesus, his whole body, with 100 pounds of this ointment of myrrh and aloes, and, and they wrapped him in strips of cloth. And now they're going to come and anoint the body again. These women, not knowing what had happened, they show up on the scene and they find that the stone was rolled away. And was the stone rolled away because they needed to, uh, so that Jesus could get out? No, the stone was rolled away so that we could go in there, so that Mary could peek in there, so that Peter and John could look in and see what they saw. And it's recorded for us in this gospel, a very significant detail, I believe, But it was rolled away so that we could see that there's nobody left in the tomb. In fact, you go there today and it's still empty. It's still empty. His resurrection body passed through the rocks. He had already passed through the rocks, passed through the cloths that he was in, passed through the rocks before the angel came and sat on top of that tomb and rolled it away. And all the soldiers who were guarding that tomb were freaking out. They were like dead men, the Bible says. Very possibly, they even fainted when they saw the sight of the angel come right on top of the tomb, blow the door away, and there they are just wetting themselves. (laughs) 
I'm sure some of them probably did. Never seen anything like that before. No, no one has seen anything like that. Now between verses 1 and 2, here in John, Luke 24, verse 10, tells us that the women, uh, these women who were at the tomb that morning, they first told the 11 disciples, and after they did, then, uh, then Peter and John ran to the tomb. Excuse me, so verse 2, it says, Then she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? It's John, yes. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. You know, it's John's gospel. Doesn't he have the right to boast a little bit? I, I love the fact, the camaraderie that these two men had. I mean, they, they were brothers, and, and there was a little bit of competition between them. And you can see it in here, and I, and I love the fact that this is here. Only John's gospel tells who outran Peter, and it was John. But he was humble enough to say the other disciple, but we all know who the other disciple is. It's John. And he, John, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths, underlying cloths, please, because that is significant. And yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came in, and he followed him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, plural, lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now these details, uh, verses 5 through 7, but especially verse 7, are unique only to John's gospel. No other gospel has these details. And does this sound like something that you would expect if the disciples were stealing the body? Would they go up to Jesus' body in the tomb and they would, um, because the guards are guarding it, by the way, and they got a whole bunch of them are out there, do you think they're going to somehow get into the tomb and go, um, you know, let's just unwrap his head real quick. And they, they unwrap his head and they fold it up in a, in a nice little napkin. Let's make this look nice because we are, you know, ambassadors. We want to do this nicely, de- decently and in order. No, they, they, they put it over there and then they grab, no. If they were stealing the body with guards, you better believe it's going to be like a black ops kind of thing. They're going to come in, swoop in, they're going to take out those guards, they're going to grab that body, roll away the stone, and they're going to be in a hurry to get out of there. But is that what the scene portrays as some quick snatch and grab of Jesus' body? Nope. It says quite the opposite. Someone took the time to take the wrapping off his head Jesus passed, the, the language here suggests that he literally, his body passed through the cloths. And being able to pass through physical things is not an, a, a, an unusual thing for Jesus. We see him doing it more than a couple times in the Gospels after his resurrection. So he passed through, and his body was not left behind, but he was transformed into his resurrection body. So let me ask you a question. The Shroud of Turin, that so much money has been spent on, so much investigation. I've actually got a book in my office about that thick, about that they studied the composition of, the, of, of this whole thing, and they've looked at it, they've, you know, they looked at the materials, they went into great detail, and all they had to do was read what you and I have just read. Verse 7 of John chapter 20 puts an end to it all. It could have saved everybody a lot of money, saved them a lot of R&D, 
They, they, they could have just read the scripture because the Shroud of Turin is a four, roughly a four foot in a, uh, width and 14 feet long. And it has this picture of, of what they think is Jesus. And there's been a lot of tension given to this thing. People have worshipped it. They venerated it. They've adored it. It's become a, um, a trinket. <laughs> and yet, in verse 7, now I want you to look at this. I'm going to read John 5 through 7 again, and I want you to tell me, is it real or is it fake? Of course, you know the answer now, right? I've already, spoiler alert, right? But notice, look at this single cloth. It's a single cloth, and it says, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths, plural, lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, lying there, and the handkerchief that was around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. As you look at this thing, is it a fraud or is it real? Of course it's a fraud. The scripture just told us it was. And with all of heaven on your shoulders, at your disposal, you can say that is a fraud. Because of what the scripture said. No PhD, no scholar, religious organization, or denomination can say to the contrary. If you want to worship it, go ahead. If you want to venerate it, go ahead. Don't know what that's all about, but it's not Jesus. Why? Because the Word of God tells us something different. There are many resources that can really bolster your faith in the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible. And I want to encourage you to get them. If you don't have uh, some of these books, I would encourage you to get them. Uh, Josh McDowell has a couple of books, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's two volumes. I think now it's in one volume. Uh, those are really great resources to read. If you're wondering about the, the veracity of the, the truth of what the Bible has to say concerning the, the, the Bible itself and the things that are in it, these two things should put that to rest for you. I mean, not that just you know scholarly reading, and this is really not hard reading, honestly. Both of these books are really well done, and they've been around for a long time. But if you have any doubts... Why not get them? Uh, we don't, I don't think we have any in our bookstore because I didn't prepare to have them sent here. But there's also a couple other good books. One is by Lee Strobel called uh, The Case uh, for Christ and Scrolls and Stones by Charlie Campbell. These are both great resources. So there's no reason that we can't have an assurance of these things. So notice back in our text in verse 8. So then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and noticed he believed. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And that really encourages me. We've already looked at this before. But I think of where these men are. Here they are, the, the very disciples, the apostles, and, and two of them go into the tomb and they didn't really understand what was happening. Yet Jesus told them on three occasions at least, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. But hey, I'm going to rise again on the third day. He told them that on at least three different occasions. And yet now when we come to it, they see and they believe, yet they're still not quite there. And I'm glad that the scripture has that in there because I realize that I'm not, 
you know, I, I, I'm in good company. See, you and I have a great treasure in our lap right now. The Word of God. All they had was the Old Testament. And they didn't walk around like this with the New Testament. You know, they didn't have it walking around and saying, you know, I've got the whole New Old Testament. Yeah, all of it. All 39 books right here. Yeah. They didn't have any of that. I mean, they had it, but they couldn't carry it around like this. Those scrolls were in the synagogues. They, they, didn't, you know, they went to synagogue to read what was written. Only the wealthy had a scroll or two or three. But you and I, we have not only the Old Testament, all of it, but the New Testament. Even on our phones we have it. What a blessed people we are. Right? We are. We're blessed. But they didn't understand the significance. And does the Old Testament, does it tell us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It certainly does. We know that in Genesis chapter 22, the account of where Abraham attempted to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, uh, which is currently the Temple Mount in Jerusalem right now, God intervened, remember, and uh, gave him a substitute, a lamb to replace his son. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, excuse me, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up his son Isaac, who had, uh, and, who, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which we also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham knew that what was happening on, the, on, on that Mount Moriah as he was attempting to put his son to death and a substitute now, a ram who had been caught in a thicket with its horns was substituting in place of his son. He knew right then that if I had to put my son to death and, and God allowed me to go through that he would have to raise him from the grave. And he received the gospel in a figurative type. And he knew that another father several thousand years down the road in time, would offer his son on the altar. But this time, there would be no other lamb to substitute it because he would be the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He is the Passover lamb. And Abraham knew this. Even in Job, what does it tell us in Job? For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In what flesh? In a different kind of flesh, certainly. But even Job knew that even after he dies, that he, that in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Does your heart yearn within you to be resurrected, to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, as it tells us in First Thessalonians 4? To be raised. I remember many years ago, I had a dream of that. It was right after I got saved. And I can't describe to you. Really didn't plan on bringing that up, but... um, But notice the next couple of verses on our screen here. Because as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when they wrote these two prophecies that I'm going to read to you, King David had already been dead about 400 years. And they were prophesying of 
David's resurrection in a period of time that is even yet future to us today. Let me read to you Jeremiah 30. It says, Alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, speaking of the great tribulation period. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no longer enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And notice, David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. What? Think of in history when he's saying this. Jeremiah is saying this about a thousand years, or I'm sorry, uh, sorry, about 400 years after David had already died. And now he's prophesying that David is going to be raised again in the millennium? Yes. And the root of David has already resurrected, Jesus Christ, but it spoke of the resurrection spoke of the resurrection. In Ezekiel, it goes on concerning this, and I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant, David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, David, a prince among them. Yes, David, risen in the millennium. God is going to give him a special place. And so when we look at now Psalm 16, it's probably the most, one of the most significant psalms concerning the resurrection. Because in verse 9 of that, it speaks of, verses 9 through 11, I believe, speak of not only Jesus' death, but his resurrection and his ascension. If we look at verse 9 of Psalm six, 16, excuse me, we see that it speaks of his death, and it says it very clearly. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh shall also rest in hope. Yes, he would be crucified. And then verse 10, his resurrection. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the grave, or Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He would only be there for three, three days. His body wouldn't even start to decompose yet. Fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when he said to them, when they said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And verse 11 of Psalm 16 speaks of the ascension. Because after he had been resurrected, it says in verse 11, you will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. You can't be in somebody's presence while still being dead. The resurrection. Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 9, speaks of his crucifixion, but in verse 12 it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. God's going to, and has given him, divided him the spoil after the crucifixion. Back in our text, says, Then the disciples, verse 10, went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Have you ever been so distraught and so heartbroken? Can you imagine what she must have felt like? 
I mean, have you, have you lost a spouse, a, a, a mother or a father, or God forbid, a child in the heartbreak that you have over that? Mary is thinking that her Savior, the one who delivered her from these, this demonic oppression and demonic possession, is gone. And she's weeping, and she's looking down in the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting in white. Notice, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now what does that remind you of? Where the body of Jesus was. The Bible, you know, he is the mercy seat. The high priest would come in once a year and they would draw and drop blood right in the center of that, between the cherubim, looking down upon the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. And there those two angels were at the place where he was. One of them here and one of them there. And they're looking down as Mary looks in. And and that should have given her a picture of what this was all about. Yes, all those stuff in the Old Testament was a picture. It was a type showing us these things that were yet future to us. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. The two angels. You can read about it in Exodus 25. So then they said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus, partly maybe because of grief, but partly because his resurrection body was a little bit different than what his other body had been. There's, there was enough difference, and, and Jesus was able to evidently change that appearance to some extent. It, it seems in the scripture, in the book of Acts, he appeared to them in a different form, and so, but his scars and his wounds were the same, they were still there. Proof that he had died on the cross. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she's so distraught, she doesn't realize that it's him. And whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Doesn't love do some crazy things? Mary, are you able to grab Jesus? I mean, I can't imagine she was like an Amazon, you know, an Amazon woman, like, you know, Wonder Woman or something. Is she going to pick up Jesus? I mean, see, isn't that crazy? That's what love does, though. When love has taken over a heart, it will do anything. And it thinks it can do anything. And I love that. I love that. There's like, when you really love, there seems to be no obstacle. And I believe that's why Mary was saying that. There was no obstacle. Her frame was much smaller than Jesus. And yet with 100 pounds of ointment and all the wrappings, not to to mention his own body weight, her heart was so filled with love. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to grab him and I'm going to flip him over my shoulder and I'm going to (laughs) walk and I'm going to take him away. And I can imagine Jesus, as he's hearing her say this, he's just grinning. And then he says, Mary... And he says it in a way where he's probably told her a hundred times before the same thing, Mary. And probably his voice was undisguised. We don't really know what happened, but all of a sudden she's like, Rabbi? Rabboni? Teacher? Is that you? That's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of John. 
Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as our location, service times, information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, and information regarding Bread of Life Academy, our new school opening in the fall of 2023. Just click the school link at the top of the page for more information. Additionally, you may also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's Sanctuary Messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play Podcast or Apple Podcast. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.